0: This interview was recorded near Frankfurt, Germany on January 25, 2020, just days after the first confirmed case of the coronavirus was identified in Europe. In the two months since, the world has changed in ways that seem unimaginable. Much of this interview focuses on a report called Trust 2030, which outlines three potential scenarios for how the world will evolve over the current decade and how trust will be altered during that time. The scenarios are triggered by a hypothetical event that rocks our faith in governments, institutions, companies, and individuals. It is very possible that the COVID-19 pandemic we are living through right now is that event and will fundamentally reshape the way we trust in all aspects of our lives. Please keep the timing of this interview in mind, as well as how this pandemic is changing our ability to trust. Fake news, data leaks, volatile cryptocurrency, deep fakes. Today's world is filled with technology that challenges our understanding of what is real and where we can place our trust. Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For a quarter century, I've been helping organizations and the leaders who run them improve performance. Now I travel the world to interview geniuses about the trends shaping the way we live and work. In a time where we are more aware than ever that lies and misleading information surround us, we must ask, who can we trust? How do we gain and maintain trust? Today's guest is Alvaro Marquez, Chief Design Officer for Method. Alvaro is an expert in how we design systems of trust. He and his team at Method conducted the Trust 2030 project in partnership with Hitachi. Trust 2030 takes a deep dive into the foundations of trust and how trust will look in the future. Álvaro, welcome to 12
1: Geniuses. Thank you. Super happy to be here.
0: Can you describe the work that you do for a living?
1: Yes. So I'm the uh, chief design officer, chief designer for Method, which is a um, product design consultancy. Uh, it's founded in 1999 in San Francisco, and we have two offices now. We have an office in New York and an office in London. And um, I lead a fantastic team of designers and technologists, and uh, business designers, and we help our clients innovate, basically launch products and services to market that are really meaningful and that are um, innovative and that make things move. What services does Method provide? It's primarily consultancy and primarily um, design services. So anything from experience design to product design to uh, product strategy, development and product engineering. So anything related with the product development lifecycle, that's what we do. Method embarked on a study called Trust
0: 2030. You did this with Hitachi. Could you describe what Trust 2030 is?
1: Trust 2030 is a project that we did together with Hitachi um, early last year, where we basically were tasked with helping Hitachi understand how is trust evolving and how is trust changing um towards 2030 and how should we think about trust in the context of the digital society you know Hitachi is a really big company Hitachi will do anything from make your you know hair dryer or microwave to install a power plant and create the factories that we 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 rely on for self-driving cars so the scale and scope of their remit is really big and the Trust 2030 project was a way to create a unifying vision for Hitachi to take internally and externally and create a point of view with regards to this is what we should be thinking of when we think of, of, of trust. So we did the project in partnership with the team, the social innovation team, uh, which is located in Tokyo. And some of the teams are working in London, some of the team members. So we basically we were looking at a feature set of scenarios in which given a particular Uh, events in the world accelerates different approaches or different understandings of trust in different directions. And we were kind of like walking back, mapping back, what does it mean to create trust, to have trust, to to be trusted in those different societies? And how would a company like Hitachi have to think of doing business and understand the world to be able to to be relevant?
0: I I want to talk about those future scenarios, but before we do that, could you talk about the the research and how it was conducted, because it's quite extensive and there mm-hmm. were multiple methods used in order to create Trust 2030.
1: Yeah, so the whole the whole research piece took about three months, a good three months. And if you're familiar with human-centered design and, and the Divel Diamond way we, we of doing things, um we conducted a significant amount of, of secondary research and desk research, which then we used to synthesize key trends and things that we were seeing happening in the world, which we in turn then used to create a set of hypotheses and um, working assumptions that we could use to inform further conversations with experts. So it was a mix of secondary research, desk research, and primary research. And we wanted to make sure that. The research was representative of the of the whole world, basically, so not just particular to one one country, one market, and one culture. So it it basically uh, was distributed pretty much in every uh, in every continent, and uh, we we were basically trying to understand what is a model of trust that it that you can extrapolate to those different societies that still works, but basically the function, the forcing function changes. So while the logic is the same, the result of that. Trust model changes depending on the context. What's the state of trust today? It's a really good question. I was discussing this with with someone last week over the impact of of, of uh, deep fakes and you know synthetic imagery and fake news or propaganda, however you want to call it. I think it's really fundamental. We still don't know what we're what we're looking at. Uh, what's interesting about deep fakes and fake news is not so much the artificial synthetic images or synthetic audio or or, or, or pieces of, of miscommunication in, in their own right. But what's what's really fundamental is the significant shift that is creating on us not trusting evidence, written evidence or recorded evidence, which is basically how we have been creating our identity ever since history, right? I mean, that's what history is all about. The beginning of history counts as the moment that we start to record, to write, things to document what happens and to create a narrative and to make sense of it. So all of a sudden, when you cannot really trust evidence, you cannot trust what you see in television or what you hear, you cannot trust whether you've seen someone saying something because that might have been doctor, but it's indistinguishable from, from, from reality. All of a sudden, it begs the question, how do we continue to create our identity and how do we continue to trust ourselves to be able to, to function as a species? Well, the ability to doctor things has been around for decades,
0: maybe even longer than that, but it's the democratization of the ability to doctor Absolutely. that has changed, right? Because y- you've heard of governments manipulating photos and things yeah. like that, but yeah. you or I can do that. Yeah. In real time. Yes. With and we our can phone. M- manipulate <laughs> video and yeah. we can create yeah. audio that you didn't say yeah. or I didn't say, yeah. which is, that's very powerful. and. A, yeah. Erosive toward trust.
1: Yeah. So it begs the question, right? How do we create those systems that uh, place value in not just the documentation of, of those proofs, but actually an inherent system of ethical or moral codes behind things, right? Mm-hmm. So just bringing that back to, to the context of Hitachi, um, the beginning of the project was actually um, disarmingly simple. It was all about trying to understand the rating mechanisms of say when you take an Uber or a Lyft or you know when you when you go to an Airbnb and 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 there's any service that you access where you are supposed to rate someone uh, how many stars, how how good was the service and whatnot. And it was us trying to unpick um h- how are those trust systems constructed? And who's to say that something is a five star versus a one star and what's the ethical implication of rating someone as good or bad while things might be factually true they might be complete lies and and fabricated stories right uh, so that that was the beginning of perhaps there's something here in, in trust that is bigger than just the mechanism of rating something that you just consume or that you just just access what is it how, how do we trust each other how do you leave a trace um, and you know what would happen if uh, if there's a major social event that accelerates these trends in, in different directions. What does the world look like? What what do we consider trustworthy or not trustworthy? So that's how it all started. Well, I think this is very fascinating. And just to share kind of a personal position,
0: it's 2020 right now, and I am frustrated with being manipulated and being pandered to by individuals and by companies already and the tools are only going to get stronger, Absolutely. and so I can imagine if there are other people who feel this way the way that I do, there there will be some sort of revolution. I, I don't know exactly what that's going to be, but and and we'll get into that because I think you have the three scenarios yeah that will outline that. When you think about the state of trust today, how would you compare it to periods over the last fifty years
1: well i can I can only think of it in a very simple, simple way through the lens of of my profession, which is that of product development, right? And product design. I think if you look at the the early days of branding, of product branding, it was pretty much all about that, right? It was about putting a name and a logo, putting a stamp on top of a, a piece of soap or some other laundry detergent or some, you know, fast moving consuming goods that um, you could trust that it would be of the same quality of the last one you had before. It was about the productization and the manufacturing consistently of a certain set of products that you could consume and buy and purchase. So, so inherently, trust through the lens of product design has been very closely related to to the development of the mass market of of you know whatever goods you you buy for home. That has had a, a magnifying effect. That is gone beyond just products and services, but actually yes. as the products and services that we continue to consume are more and more digital, that model is not just about the piece of soap, but about the promise of the experience of how will I feel when I use the soap? So it's still branding, right? It's still about a promise delivered or not. What's different now than, than before is that the rest of the, let's say, um, architectural pieces of society are also becoming digital. So we are using the same interfaces to value, you know, how good was my lift, right? But also how good is the food in this restaurant and how trustworthy is this politician? So all of a sudden you start to to mix signals and it's difficult to tell what's real and what's not real and what's important and what's not important. And I think that's what's significantly different than before that. Back in the day when the government spoke, there was a very particular way of speaking and relating to the citizens, right? And so it was the media was inherently trustworthy because there was a monopoly on who says what. Uh, that's not the case anymore. That's through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. The government shares the same literal pipes as the brand that's trying to sell you a pair of sneakers or the influencer who's showing you how cool the life is. And so it's it's creating this this weird mirror. Of you know, House of Mirrors. Like, what am I looking at? Really, what's what's behind the distortion? And to your point, you 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 cannot help but feel that there's some kind of manipulation somewhere. You might not be able to spot it and put your finger on it, but there's there's something there that is kind of unsettling. um, That makes you question, makes you doubt. Is this is this really true? Is this for real?
0: In the Trust 2030 study, you identify the potential futures related to trust. Can you describe these three? different societies
1: or futures? The main premise of the futures of 2030 project are based on one significant event in society that propels three different timelines, if you if you will. So there's a key event, which in, in our working uh, hypothesis is a massive leak of data that exposes some of the inner workings of how certain decisions are made in society, from politicians and brands and, and corporations, that expose—it's almost like you know—you see uh, you see the the man behind the curtain and the wizard of Oz, and then all of a sudden you're you're exposed to the truth of of what's behind it. So basically, we take some of these assumptions and then these hypotheses, and through the conversations with the subject matter experts in different geographies in the world, we we take what's particularly unique about these three, these traits of these societies, and then we extrapolate them to their, as far as we can to try to see what would happen if this is driven to 100. So there's three different societies that emerge, or three relationships to to trust that emerge from that key event. And then one of these societies puts trust and trust-making in um, absolute transparent and decentralized decision-making. A silly example is, a politician who is broadcasting their life 24-7, 365 days, and explaining why they make the choices that they make. So it's almost like um, some kind of big brother, but as opposed to just being entertainment, it's just mapping for uh, you know, for safety or for trust reasons. Why why would someone do it? Um, another society is pretty much the opposite, which is highly centralized and curated. And it is uh, consolidated by big corporations where everything is highly customized to yourself. Um, and everything is made particularly to your particular context and, and unique. But there's no transparency as, as in how is this decision being made? How is this data being uh, gathered? And how do I know that this is the actual pill that I need to take? That, yes, it has my name and it says, Hey, Álvaro. This is the this is your snack for um, you know after workout that you're gonna take at 7:15 in the evening, and this is just what you need. So it all comes from the same one center of of truth of of gravity, which is fairly uh, fairly different to the previous society. The last one that we that we envisaged was a society which was about the power of the network, a network that is autonomous and distributed. So trust is placed not in the individuals, not in transparency, not in in in. Uh, single unified view of the world, but actually in the fact that the network is what articulates trust. This is that that vehicle that actually enables trust to happen, if you will. And there's a few other examples that I can give you there. But but those are those are the, the starting points of the same key event uh, propels different timelines and, and and demonstrate different aspects of trust. The question that usually follows is. So which one do you prefer? <laughs> or do you think that any of these is gonna be happening or is there one more likely to take place than the other? And the answer is I prefer none of them and I prefer all of them. And what usually happens is that all of them manifest themselves in different ways in different parts of the planet. From a governmental standpoint, from a, you know even, even what we're hearing nowadays of that uh, coronavirus in China, the democratization of information and where the where the source of information is coming from is particular of one one of these societies is particularly you know telling of a centralized society that is uh, there's basically one single source of truth.
0: We have the three scenarios: the first is decentralized and transparent; the second is centralized and curated; the third is distributed and autonomous. Mm-hmm. You pointed to China, and it would seem like they would be centralized and curated. Yeah,
1: or, could be or could closest be, yeah. could be, yeah. to yeah. that, or yeah. ma- or maybe North Korea. I'm not sure. At least at the at least at the higher level, when it comes to central government, mm-hmm. this structuring uh, body. Yes, but
0: but is there an example of maybe a country or a community that is decentralized and transparent? That yeah, you can the, think of? yeah,
1: yes, there is. But before before jumping into another society. You could also think of a centralized and curated network not only as a country, as a government, but also as a corporation like Amazon or Facebook. Yes. Right. And that's right.
0: that's what I was thinking about, right. too, is like you in the centralized and curated example, you are basically marrying a company. Yeah. And this company is going to make choices for you. On your behalf. On your behalf, based on data. Yeah. And it, it's going to be optimized for you. But it's really taking choice out of, out, out of the scenario. I took your study. <laughs> I took the survey. I wanted a distributed and autonomous society of the three. You know, yeah. as I looked at these three, I came up with centralized and curated. Yeah. And I'm very disappointed in myself. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? When you actually do it, that what, what you assume you're going to get is actually not what comes out. And, and this is exactly the point that you cannot really force a particular outcome on a bigger scheme of things, but you're making decisions on a day-to-day that actually take you inevitably in a particular direction. Uh, and this is what's so difficult to quantify, and this is why it's impossible to foresee a particular future. And this is some of the work we do with our clients where the ability to envision different scenarios, it's critical not not in order to anticipate those scenarios, but actually to build the muscle to think in different contexts and in different ways and different dimensions so you can actually react and adapt Uh, in an agile way, in a swift way, as opposed to betting everything on a particular way of of doing things.
0: One of the things that's fascinating is that, I I heard this again recently, is that 90% of the data that have ever been created have been created in the last two years. Mm -hmm. And this is something that my former business partner used to talk about when he would speak. And he was saying this in 2014, 2015. It's still true. Today. It's still true. So <laughs> so you know we were blown away by that in 2014 or 2015 yeah. and it's still true. And so the amount of data grows exponentially and will continue to grow. So you know I think it's something like 127 new devices are created or are joining the internet of things every second. Mm-hmm. It's like 11 million a day. Nice. <laughs> so you 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 can start to imagine, okay, well, the amount of data will not slow down. Data creation will not slow down. It will continue. And so when you think about that, you can think about, oh, well, maybe these scenarios mm-hmm.
1: are not so far-fetched. And, the, and that is something that tends to happen um, to us, and it's really funny to you. Witness when we work with clients to create these radical scenarios, future scenarios 2020, 2030, 2050, and then you map out this completely ridiculous nonsense, apparent apparent nonsense, apparently ridiculous nonsense. And then six months in, it turns out that that thing becomes true. So it really tells something about our ability to quantify the amount of change and the speed of change. Uh, I I think, I don't remember who that is. it doesn't matter, but someone someone said something like, we, "We are really good at underestimating how much effort it takes to do something, and we are really bad at overestimating how quickly things change," or something like that. Well, the 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 quote that I've often heard is, "We overestimate
0: what we can d- get done in a year, we underestimate what happens in ten years." Exactly. And Thank I don't you, know who uh, originally uh, said that. The the first person I heard say it is Eric Schmidt from Google when he was Google. at Google.
1: So it's definitely coming from a technical, technological For
0: for sure. And others probably have said it before, but that is so true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, for me, what begs the question is how does having access to more data change the way we use data? Um, How does it allow us to ask questions we didn't even know we had after the fact? Because today, the way we create data is basically, there's, there's two ways. Either you just... And harvest, and, and try to make sense out of it later, and then you realize that it's impossible. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, or you have an hypothesis, and then you set some markers, and then start looking for, for indicators that that hypothesis might be true. I think uh, there's this this when it, when it comes to to data creation, you you need to think of you know cleaning up the data, sorting out the data, tagging the data, processing the data visualizing the data, accessing the data. So all of a sudden it's a soft infrastructure that you need to put in place. So it's not just something that, you know, you, you do one thing and, and it's done and it's there and then you're finished. It's it's almost like you need to set up new highways, but for data. And those highways need to be accessible and they need to be really, you know, pretty well done. And they need to be uh, there need to be has to be road signs and there needs to be some directions. So um I suspect that a, a lot of the a lot of the most innovative product and service solutions that we've been doing have been related to data and to that ability from companies to create soft strategies, if you will. Uh, Would they rely less on the what does the data say, but assuming that this data will be available by a a certain point?
0: I want to get back to the three different scenarios or societies that you are predicting for the Trust 2030 report. The first one, decentralized and transparent. In the report, you talked about things like connected ID cards that verify expertise, on-demand medical kits, mobile device with notifications. What's the upside and downside
1: benefits and liabilities of a decentralized and transparent society? I don't think there's clear straight up upside um, or downside. I think they just represent a model to deal with with trust. Uh, How trust is created and how trust is measured and how trust is documented. Going back to what I was saying earlier, some of the more indicative qualities of these societies are already present in in, in the world around us today. Uh, they are just taken to the extreme to paint a different paradigm. Um, the, the, the carbon footprint of that banana that comes in the label or the provenance or, you know, the human rights, is it a fair product, has it been harvested? Uh, by people who were were paid a fair, you know, a a fair wage and and so on. When we were designing these scenarios, that seemed like a bit of a far-fetched, like unreasonable thing. Like it's almost like impractical. You cannot really trace every single banana, right? Every single product. Yeah, guess what? You know, fast forward a few years on, and that is almost to be expected. Like I find myself... um, Making choices in the supermarket based on the country of origin of, of certain products, like tomatoes, where do they come from? I, I don't really need to buy tomatoes that come from that far away. I just really need local produce because I know the traders that you're making and I know how, um, how that product and those choices impact society. So, so the point of, of that um, decentralized and transparent society is basically devolving the trust making mechanism to every single micro interaction to every single person at every point in their life, as opposed to decentralized and curated where there's a big company that on your behalf, um, assuming on your best interest, makes every single choice for you beforehand, you know, ahead of, of your choices. So again, there's, there's not necessarily a clear upside or, or benefit to one or the other. It's just different ways of, of creating that, creating that model. And I think um, the purpose of these three societies is, is to... To look at ourselves straight in the face and and to face what would life look like if this was to become the norm, how would we behave and how would we relate with each other? Right. Um I kind of prefer this society as well, decentralized and transparent. <laughs> <laughs> you do that. I this do. is the one yeah. you prefer. I do. Yeah. I do. It. I don't know. It feels. It feels more empowering somehow. It feels bringing it back home, like closer to the way. I think we should be relating to each other, which is, you know, on a one-to-one interaction as opposed to trusting nebulous
0: systems. Yes. In some ways, like Netflix is already curating my content for Yeah, me. definitely. You definitely. know, and they're right very often, but there's a part of me that is very uncomfortable with that because I love to explore. Yeah. You know, if, if all the data they ever had was the music I listened to up until I was 25... I would still be listening to Bob Seger and <laughs> you know, Led Zeppelin, which Nothing is fine. Nothing, Nothing wrong, wrong with that. that. I, you know, still enjoy it. But I would never have been exposed to Miles Davis. Exactly. I would yeah. Never have been exposed to Pavarotti and you know some of these other yeah. things. So I love that
1: exploratory yeah. ability. It 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 definitely comes in a very interesting space and asks very articulate questions like. Where's where's serendipity? Where 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 is the ability to be surprised, to, to let things happen on their own right without having to be planned for and calculated and accounted for? When we make choices based on convenience or smooth interactions or something that is effortless and seamless, we're basically um, priming these kind of systems to evolve. And we are reinforcing that because we're taking we're taking the our agency out of the question and we are granting that ability to somebody else to make those choices on our behalf. Case in point is Netflix. Because I know that you like this, let me give you more of that because I, I really think that you're going to enjoy that or that podcast or whatnot with music and with literature and with food and whatnot. So I think it, it creates that, that view of, yeah, everything is perfect. And in an Apple world, there's this walled garden where it's Perfectly optimum, where I don't even have to break a sweat because everything just works and everything is tailored to exactly what I need and how I feel every single point of the day. But what's the trade off, right? What are we losing when we get a perfectly uh, smooth society? And this not only happens in in the perfect world, right? Like we know historically, whenever there's a big uh, economic turmoil and depression, populists uh, voices in and uh, civic society tend to raise because they're quick, easy answers that take away the uncertainty and that promise order and you know a unified view of the world and no dissent and everything will be smooth again and we know what <laughs> we know what happens when 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 that actually goes into full power. So so yeah it's not dissimilar. We'll we'll touch on this at the end, but where can people find this report? Well, it's um, on method.com on our website. If you go to the work section or to the futures section, you will find their future trust. And there's an explanation of the project and a bit of a case study. Plus, you can access the report and then you can go pretty deep in the content and understanding how these societies are constructed and how do we get to those societies. And why do they behave the way they do and why do they exist?
0: About 40% of people who use social media don't trust social media or don't trust the information on social media. Mm -hmm. And so do you see this skepticism of social media really changing the behaviors
1: of the people who are using it? When the way you make decisions changes, what's right and what's wrong is no longer easy to tell. And when you optimize for a certain sort of behaviors, then you need to readjust how you create content, how you create products, how you create news. Perhaps we will, you know, we would have never have the best quality journalism in the future if we wouldn't have gone through a patch of fake news, and feeling that the damage that it can create. So going back to the struggle and, and uh, becoming a better version of yourself, you know, uh, perhaps this is a way of learning because we never knew, and we just uh, are figuring it out as we go. It's just that it's really visible, right? Yeah, it it seems like we we really have to be
0: diligent, and the other thing that I think of is there's an attraction to the outrageous. Yes. And when I say outrageous, I don't mean outlandish, but I mean things that make you outraged. It's a
1: powerful feeling. It's,
0: it's, it, it's a powerful feeling, yes. And I think we have to have an awareness of, am I being manipulated? Am yeah. I being, you know, am I the moth being drawn to the yeah. light here? Yeah. 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 And is there their danger? Okay. That seems kind of too enticing to to make me outraged. I'm going to just turn it off, to to your point. Step back. Step back and
1: breathe. (laughs) Yeah.
0: We talked about this a little bit earlier, but
1: what are deep fakes? Deep fakes is the name that's given to a set of images or videos or audio pieces that have been artificially created. And by that, I mean... Uh, images in which you see somebody saying something that they didn't really say. Somebody behaving in a way that they would normally do. Some of the most notorious cases of deepfakes, as usual, started in the porn industry where faces of famous people are swapped uh, in the bodies of actors performing certain things that you know violate the integrity of, of that person. If that wasn't bad enough, you can think of it in the context of a politician. Declaring war of someone or saying outlandish outrageous things that may have never happened in the past, but because of our ability to synthesize, voice and modulate the message and to manipulate the image, it might look as if that person really said that. Uh, the issue with deep fakes is not so much that they exist, because you cannot really blame mathematics for being accurate, but the intent behind the use of deep fakes and how they are weaponize to manipulate public sentiment and public opinion and how potentially it erodes our ability to trust written record and documents of our history that create meaning and create a sense of belonging and identity. Who's creating them and why? Who's creating them? Everyone. You can create them. Just download an app with your phone and you can create them yourself in real time Something that was, that was very costly and expensive, and that only Hollywood could do twenty years ago, that would take millions uh, of investment in technology and, and skills. Uh, now you can do it in real time, and sometimes you do it just for laughs. Replace your face with a, with a dinosaur face, uh, change your gender, change your age, uh, travel back in time, change your voice. Something as silly as that uh, to um, to you know mass manipulation campaigns of changing public sentiment before an election, for example. Do you think it's possible to legislate against these the
0: use of these deepfakes, particularly when the stakes are so high, like an election or like maybe the ousting of a CEO of a powerful corporation or something yeah,
1: like that? Yeah, this is a great question. I'm not sure if it's possible, but it's absolutely necessary. Uh, we need to create some codified Rules of engagement for creating those. We have libel and slander laws, but it, they they feel kind of out of place. No, they they don't they don't feel, they don't feel it's like, not the same. No, not really, because you might be able to manipulate someone's opinion about somebody else's without slandering them or without officially being. No, allowed. no, I understand that, but I'm I'm saying couldn't
0: could the legislation be comparable to like libel and slander? There definitely needs to be a, an
1: extension. Because it's a new context, so it requires a new application and then it needs to be reevaluated. But yes, I think it's really, really necessary. Um, you need to have a, a code of conduct and a clear set of delineated application context where something is, is allowed or not allowed.
0: Are there any technologies or innovations being used or being developed that can help build trust?
1: When we started the, the 2030 project, um, some, some voices around the project say, well, this this project is moot, right? Because, I mean, we already know what the future of trust is. It's, it's blockchain. Uh, it's That's what's going to be giving us the solution to trust. Well, guess what? It turns out that there is no particular technology that is inherently an answer to the question. Technology, again, is just an enabler. It's in a way the distributor of trust. But trust is not per se created with the tool. The tool is just an enabler. So if we don't trust each other, no matter what pen we use to sign a contract, we will still not trust each other, no matter what the contract and the pen is, right? So this is the same equivalent with technology. Technology is is just a way to, to facilitate that trust being exchanged. In the 1700s and 1600s, with the introduction of paper notes as paper money, the paper money that was said, you know, I grant that I will pay this amount of money to that person, to the holder of this, and you could trust that this, this paper money had value. Our money nowadays is digital. It still holds the same value, um, but there's the figure of the central bank who and the government who says, yes, I will pay this money to that person, even if the money is digital. If you take away the trust in the government or the central bank because of manipulation, all of a sudden the value of that paper it's not quite the same. So what we're looking at is actually our ability to trust each other and to trust the institutions that allow us to trust each other and to trust ourselves. And I think that's the, that's the, bigger, that's the bigger question. There is no particular technology in itself that would solve that problem, but it's our ability to commit to using technology in a certain way and not in another way. What creates that trust? Another very simple example is uh, nuclear technology, Right. The same technology that we use to conduct x-rays, we trust each other that you can look through me to help me feel better, can also be used in a very destructive way. And we commit to not use that technology in, in that way. So from my point of view, we're, we're facing a similar dilemma. You can use technology to create deep fakes that are uh, misleading and manipulative, or you can use them to recreate a memory that you lost the photo from that birthday party of your kid when she was three years old, but because you have photos from the event right before and after, you're able to reconstruct. And that is a positive thing, right? So I think we still need to think through, what do we want to use this for? We haven't stopped and asked ourselves that question. We are rushing and plastering everything with the technology without thinking, how might this be used to hurt someone? How might this backfire? What happens if this gets out of hand or if somebody with bad intentions uses it against us?
0: Where can people learn more about you and about Method?
1: Well, as usual, the easiest way is to go to the web and method.com. It's a good place and on LinkedIn as well. I've got my profile there. I like to respond to people. I like to meet people like yourself, right? Individuals have super engaging conversations and exchange notes about how we see things panning out in the world. So that's that's the best.
0: A very fabulous conversation, wonderful conversation. And I uh, appreciate your time and thank you for being a genius.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Our next episode will be about the future of entrepreneurship with Gino Wickman. After launching his own successful entrepreneurial endeavor at the age of 21, Gino has dedicated his career to helping other entrepreneurs harness their full potential. Devin McGrath is our production assistant. Brian Bierbaum is our research and historical consultant. Toby, Tony, Jay, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London make sure the sound and editing are phenomenal. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. If someone you know would benefit from the information in this episode, please share it with them. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.